0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. Negotiate Anything is produced by the American Negotiation Institute. And with over 3 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. I'm Kwame Christian and I'm the director of the American Negotiation Institute. We're growing and I want to introduce you to our new team members and new trainers. This will help to give you new diverse perspectives on negotiation and conflict resolution. That's why I'm excited to let you know that Shane Martin, our head of sales and partnerships, is going to serve as co-host of the show from time to time. We are passionate about providing you with the best content that will help to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, before we get into the episode, I want to remind you that our team conducts negotiation and conflict resolution trainings in the United States and abroad. Our trainings will give you the practical skills you need to resolve conflict, negotiate, lead, and persuade with confidence. Click the link in the description below to learn how we can help to make your difficult conversations easier. And now, let's get to the show. Mike, thanks for joining us again.
1: Thanks for having me back, Wami. It's great to see you.
0: Yeah, it is good to have you back, my friend. So, how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: So, for the folks that maybe haven't heard us before, Michael Reddington, certified forensic interviewer and executive resource. I'm the president of Inquasive Inc., and we teach executives how to increase commitments to action and reduce missed opportunities by applying strategic and ethical observation and persuasion techniques.
0: I love it. And You have big news, my friend. So can you share that with the audience?
1: I appreciate you asking. Yes, sir. So we are officially published. Um, My first book, The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation, is now available for purchase online at all the major retailers and outlets. So really, really excited about that.
0: Yes, we're excited about that too. And, you know, honestly, Mike, I was, the big news I was talking about was your son's T-ball league. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I guess, I guess the book is good too. The book is good too. But no, yes, this is yes. great. This is really great. I'm, I'm excited about this because for the listeners who haven't listened to Mike's episodes in the past, they are, they're some of my favorite, really, really, really good. And so I'm, I'm pumped to essentially use the book as a, you know, as our muse for this conversation. And so, I really like the title, The Disciplined Listening Method, because, you know, people come on the podcast all the time, they say, listen, listen, listen. Of course, and people understand that's at the heart of negotiation. But when you think about the, just the word listening versus disciplined listening, what what's the distinction?
1: Thank you for asking. So as I get into this, I want to make sure that I'm clear up front that I'm not talking down about active listening. I don't want to come across that way at all. Those traditional active listening behaviors that have been taught since the 50s, are good and we should do those things but there's several opportunities that lay within them so first really active listening equates to attentive listening so it's true that if you believe that I'm showing you more attention while you're talking then yes you're more likely to share more information that's true I'm willing to bet there's a pretty serious percentage of your listeners that are black belts at looking people in the eye smiling, nodding, mirroring their posture, occasionally summarizing a word or two they heard, all while summarily ignoring the person that they're looking at and thinking about some other pressing matter in their day, how they feel or what they want to say next. So it looks like we're listening, but we're really not. And that's it's it's how our brain works. our internal monologue runs about four times faster than we can speak audibly out loud. so our mind is going to be racing ahead, and there are some distractions. So with disciplined listening, yes, all of those active beha- active listening behaviors still apply. However, the focus of disciplined listening is identifying hidden value in every conversation as trite or as you know listening one oh one as this may sound how do we elevate the goals we take into every conversation and then apply that goal-oriented approach? So now I'm observing, looking, and listening for any indication to achieve that goal, to enhance the relationship, to enhance the project, to enhance the outcome based on the conversation. I think that's basically summarized. I may have rambled there a little bit. But that really, from my bias perspective, is what separates disciplined listening. Understand the goals we're looking to achieve, implying applying specific behaviors and techniques to maximize the relationship to achieve those goals.
0: Oh, this is great, Mike. Because for me, one of the the signs of a brilliant insight is that it seems obvious in hindsight and that's that's how i feel about this because you're right and i i think one of the best parts of what you just said is that you've normalized the listening experience for so many people because we've been taught active listening square your body make eye contact give those um nonverbal like encouragers and summarize from time to time we're really good at that but i'll i'll call myself out sometimes i would i would be doing those things and my body essentially goes on autopilot it does it naturally at this point and then a few seconds pass by and I say, where did I go? Could they tell I was gone? I don't know. You know, and so really what you've done with this is you've taken listening to the next level because yes, active listening is good, but this is much better. And I like the fact that it's goal oriented. We're not just listening for the sake of listening. We're actually focusing on the outcome that we're trying to achieve through listening.
1: Thank you. And That goal outcome or that goal focus is really important. There's a fair amount of research that is consistent and clear that we generally will apply as much focus and effort we believe to be necessary based on the expectations we have going into the conversation. So if I go into a conversation thinking what I say isn't going to matter to Kwame, he's got his mind made up, he's going to do what he wants. Or if I go in thinking, my mind's made up. There's, you know, maybe he surprises me, but more or less, I don't think he's got anything for me. Now my expectations are low. If I if I go in expecting there to be, and I say this in air quotes that people might not be able to see, but expecting there to be a fight, right? This is This is going to be an argument. Then I'm not going to put in a lot of effort to make sure that doesn't happen. And subconsciously, I might do some things that actually create that argument that otherwise could have been avoided. But if, I, if I'm going into a conversation and I literally elevate my goal, shift my mind's eye from the short-term tactical to the long-term, tr- long-term strategic. So instead of thinking about what is the time drain that this conversation is going to have on my day or my life? What's the emotional drain that this is going to have? Where are you and I so different that it's going to be frustrating and hard to work from? If I'm focusing on that, my expectations tend to be short-term focused, negative, and reduce the amount of effort and focus I'm willing to put in. But now if I look out and say, okay, well, I'm here for a reason. What's the greater reason? What's the long-term impact of this conversation? Not just where does it have me today, but where does it position me down the road in the next conversation, the next relationship, the next opportunity? Now the reward or the incentive is bigger. And because the reward or the incentive is bigger, I'm more likely to apply more effort, more focus, compartmentalize my emotions, separate the people from the issue, all of these things that I know that you teach. Because now it isn't just about surviving this conversation. It's about moving bigger pieces on a bigger chessboard to a more productive outcome.
0: This is great. And Mike, I think, tell me what you think about this. It it sounds like one of the the most powerful elements of what you've described just now is the fact that in order to do this effectively, one of the best things you can do is simply change your mindset and perspective because you haven't said specifically, do this, that, and the other. It wasn't like a laundry list of uh, those things that you need to do differently. Those things that you need to do differently will happen organically if you change from the short-term thinking to long-term thinking, focus on your goals, and then naturally you'll recognize what you need to do in the moment to achieve those goals.
1: Love it, love it.
0: No, this is great, it, it makes so much sense. And, and one of the things that you mentioned was hidden value. So when you're using the disciplined lear- uh, listening method, we're searching for hidden value. So when you say that term, what does that mean to you?
1: For me, that comes from my interrogation experience. And honestly, it comes from victims, witnesses and suspects, not just what you, you know, not every, especially for where where I come from, we're not just sitting down with people who, you know, this person committed this crime, get him or her to confess, you know, generally, for the 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 situations my former teammates and I found ourselves in, we're getting called out for situations with multiple suspects, no evidence, everybody's already been interviewed at least once, and declared that they did nothing and know nothing. Several weeks or months have gone by, and now that the situation has become so untenable, my former teammates and I are called out to identify the truth and resolve the situation. So at that point, it could be very easy to say, okay, I need to figure out who did it, and I need to get them to confess. But now confirmation bias sets in, diagnosis bias sets in, all kinds of other problems start to flare up. Instead, if I start looking at those conversations and thinking to myself, okay, there's a 99.9% likelihood that nobody involved in this investigation wants anything to do with talking to me. The victims don't want to go through it again. The witnesses don't want to go through it again. And whoever the guilty person may or may not be, they most certainly don't want to go through this again, because they probably feel like they've almost got got away with this by now. So by realizing that Pretty much nobody wants to talk to me. (laughs) I cannot take that personal, just understand it's part of the game, what we're going to go through. And now instead of looking for a confession or looking for an admission, I can take an educational or a learning mindset into each one of these conversations and say, okay, what can I learn about this situation through each one of these conversations? And through that learning mentality, I can be patient. I can let the conversation come to me. And now instead of listening for a confession or a gotcha moment, I can listen for opportunities, literally, to build unexpected bonds. There's value there. I just found out that we have something in common. I just found out that someone had a different perspective. I just learned that someone was facing pressures inside of their life that previously investigators were unable to identify. So the more I learn, the more I put myself in a position where people feel like I'm not judging we're two equal parties in the conversation, and we can arrive at an unexpected outcome together. We can both have input in that. So, when we talk about listening for hidden value, oftentimes it's being surprised. It's allowing ourselves to go into a conversation with the mindset of, I certainly don't know everything. I've got to learn as I go through this. And if I really pay close enough attention to the nuances of the conversation, i can pick up on what people are really thinking how people are really feeling and sometimes even maybe not the best term but throwaway statements you know little side remarks that people make can can really unlock new roads for us to take to get to the goal we really want so it's more about having a framework that allows us to uncover new and valuable information as we go through as opposed to going in with a script and trying to just ram my head into the short term goal that it might look like on the surface I need to achieve.
0: Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. This flips the script for so many people in these difficult conversations because one of the things that people want to have is something they can never have fully in these conversations, which is control. They want to control the conversation. They want to control the other person. People don't like it to be controlled and then it actually creates more resistance and you can have an impact with the way that you approach the conversation but you can never fully control the interaction and so again going back to the mindsets that you're talking about the willingness to be surprised that i i don't think i've heard any let's just say straight uh negotiation expert say you need to embrace the unknown and be willing to be specifically surprised. They're always talking about how to minimize surprises. And so that mentality I think is really important. And so I want to dig deeper into that because it's so rare in this context. Why is it so important to embrace that?
1: A Couple of things I'd love to touch on there. I believe in my bones, especially when we talk about difficult, uncomfortable, potentially contentious conversations, the single best way to maintain control of that conversation is to let the other party feel like they are in control. Is Literally, and this actually kind of ties into something you and I were talking about before we came on. Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, if I push you, you're going to push me back harder. Now, that's also metaphorically true. So when you metaphorically push me back harder, you are now putting your flag in the sand. You want to keep control of the conversation. So if I never push you, you don't have to push me. You feel like you're in control of the conversation, but I know where it's going. If I have a really good idea on generally speaking what I want the outcome of this conversation to be, Where it starts and who controls the start doesn't make a difference because I can take wherever you start the conversation and over time, work it to the outcome or the general area of outcomes that I believe will be productive for this conversation. So by allowing somebody else to have control, now I'm guiding or facilitating the conversation. I'm not forcing it. And in a lot of negotiations for people that believe they have to be in control of this conversation it's like they step right into the spider's web. They're leading the conversation in their mind the way they believe they need to lead it because I'm not trying to wrestle that control from them. It's just a matter of time before the circuitous route, more often than not, not always, leads it to where we want to be. So that's, I wanted to touch on that about the control piece that you mentioned. Getting back to the surprise piece, preparation is absolutely key. Situational awareness is absolutely key. If we minimize the amount of variables we have to deal with during the conversation, we minimize the amount of things we have to think about, we can be more focused. So I'm a huge fan of not preparation to the point of paralyzation, but, you know, a thorough preparation to limit some of those surprises for sure. For me, where I think about the willingness to be surprised is forcing the the maintenance of the learning mentality, If I believe I know how this movie is going to end, then I'm in a validation mentality. And anything you say or do is just going to reinforce what I'm looking to validate. But if I'm in a learning mentality and I go and saying, you know what, I think I've got this pretty well planned out, but Kwame may surprise me. He may say or do something that opens up an opportunity that I might not think currently exists. So I have to be open and aware of that going in. And also being open and aware to surprises helps limit the unproductive emotional reaction when it happens. So if somebody springs something on me or something comes up out of the clear blue sky, instead of me spinning in my chair thinking, wait a minute, what do I do now? It's like, all right, cool. That happened. How does that slot into the goals we're looking to achieve? How can I use that? So I may have rambled in a couple different places outside of, of your initial question, but that's... I believe how it frames together.
0: There are so many different directions we can go with this, but let's just talk about going with the flow for a moment. Get a little Zen here. It's like um, Bruce Lee said, be like water right? You need to adjust, you need to be flexible. And I love the idea, the distinction between that learning mentality versus the validation mentality. And to me, it makes us realize that we need to step back and check our biases. And one of the frustrations I have with like for bias trainings, and this is for somebody who conducts bias trainings too, is that a lot of them are so limited. They focus, they focus on protected classes of, of individuals. So you think about race, religion, sexual orientation, those type of things. And it's very important to address those things. But you have to understand that bias is everywhere. And so for you as an investigator, if you are going in and you're saying, this person is doing this for this particular reason, I know this to be true, but you don't recognize that you came to that conclusion because of a bias, not because of the, the, the information that's in front of you, then you're going to misinterpret things because you're not going with the flow. You're trying to force the flow in a direction where it's not meant to go. And so what I'm realizing here is that with this disciplined learning method, what we're doing is we're, we're really availing ourselves to the purest form of information because we are availing ourselves to information that is untainted by the biases and perceptions that we might be trying to validate, that we don't recognize what we're trying to validate during the conversation.
1: Amen. And when you talk about biases, I want to echo the importance, especially in regards to the protective classes. There's a a research study that I find to be credible that says we have 175 cognitive biases. Those are biases that are essentially hardwired into our brains to help us make decisions we're comfortable with as fast as possible and continue to find comfort with them. The thing that our brain literally hates the most is discomfort. It's where cognitive dissonance or buyer's remorse comes in. I did something, I don't like it. Oh, let me rationalize that really quick. Now I feel comfortable. I can go on with my life. So, and then there's three other research studies. Um, one out of, see if I get all of these right. One out of Princeton that showed we're capable of judging somebody's character, trustworthiness, and I believe assertiveness was the other one inside of 100 milliseconds after looking at their face. A study from the University of Glasgow found the same character. We can determine somebody's, I'm not saying accurately, but we feel like we can determine somebody's the same characteristics inside 500 milliseconds after them hearing them say the word hello. And then there was out of the University of Colorado, they did a study that we're capable of characterizing somebody Basically putting a label on them, this person is X, within 150 milliseconds after looking at them. And that study might have some some specific value to you with some of that bias training that you do. Because if I recall correctly, the two specific categories they focused on were gender and race. Like how quickly can you decide somebody's gender or race by looking at them and it's a, it was 100 milliseconds, 100 to 150, um, which is dangerous for lots of reasons. But now literally, if we think about the expectations we take into a conversation, positive, negative, or neutral, our focus and effort is going to be directly related to that. So that is going to cloud the interpretation we're making tops in 500 milliseconds. And then we've got 175 biases backed up, basically, and I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush here, to make us feel really good about what we just thought in 500 milliseconds. So this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, Many years ago, I was working with the sheriff's department outside of Chicago, and they had a woman who they thought for sure was responsible for a series of break ins and they had, uh, for, um, burglaries would probably be a better word. Uh, and they interviewed her a couple of times and they weren't able to get her to admit and they asked me to come down. Well, they called my former company and I was the one that ended up going down. I don't want to make it sound like they called Mike Reddington, but it was my organization I was with at the time. <laughs> and so I'm down, and at this point, I'm like, I don't know what the right analogy – for everyone that's seen Law & Order at this point in the process, I'm iced t behind the mirror. like So I'm not the guy in the room right now. We were kind of working in and out. There was a, a different technique that they wanted to use. And this team of detectives is convinced that they've got the right woman until she made a comment and said the word her. And as soon as she said the word her, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. It's her daughter. It's not her. Of course, you think you're in the right place because they're super close. But now if I replay so many of the answers that I've heard, she just let the pronoun slip. We're talking to the wrong woman. So if we don't let ourselves be surprised, if we don't stay open to the fact that there could be something out there that we don't know about, then we end up locked into this, wondering why the harder I hit this square peg, it won't fit into the round hole, and it must be the peg's fault.
0: That's an incredible example, and it makes it so real. And it goes back to one of the things that you said was, again, not just the fact that we, are, we need to be open to be surprised to being surprised, but the side comments. Let's go deeper into those side comments, because I think that's a really important nuance that a lot of people might miss.
1: Yeah, so there's in in many business conversations, whether it's a formal negotiation, whether it's a client meeting, whether it's a team getting together, there's often the socialization piece prior to the meeting officially starting. And if, if so, you and I, we spent some time together. Now, I'm willing to bet if we were together in the same room, we'd have a genuine conversation based on the interests we've identified. But for a lot of people, that's an exercise in social politeness. They don't necessarily care. They're not super interested. Yes, they're respectful of each other, but I'm supposed to ask you, hey, how you doing? How is your flight? How's the weather? How's the kids? Like I'm, I'm supposed to say those things and you're supposed to answer them. So we just kind of do it because we should. And then at the end of the meeting, There could be that same process on the way out the door, or maybe we go to dinner or something. But again, unless there's a real relationship in play, we're doing this out of mutual respect and because we have to. There's not a whole lot of general or genuine interest and focus. Then, throughout the meeting, especially if this is an iterative process and there's multiple meetings over time. There's sidebar conversations. You know, there's a break in the meeting and maybe you're negotiating with two parties and they pull out their phones and they start talking about something that has on the surface, nothing to do with this negotiation. But how much intelligence can you gather by listening to that? What type of thought process are they sharing? What type of challenges are they talking about? What type of goal or larger motivations, a bigger plan or strategy are they actually alluding to? Because we get to overhear that. So, using either these social polite conversations and or really paying attention to some of these sidebar conversations that we may or may not be in instead of just listening for, okay, what are they afraid of today? What do they want today? What's their motivation today? If we really start being more contextually or situationally aware, and just thinking, what can I learn about them as a person? What can I learn about them from their strategic standpoint? What can I learn about their business? And now it becomes, here's an analogy that many people might not get anymore, but it becomes like a mental Rolodex. Now I can start filing these things away, so I'm not so much worried about whether I'm almost never honestly worried about whether someone's telling me the truth or not. I could really care less far more often than not. What I really care about is what's going on between their ears. What are they thinking and feeling and how are shifts in their thought process or emotional process valuable to me in regards to advancing the relationship?
0: Oh, Mike, this is so good. This is so good. It makes so much sense. But again, it shows, again, your expertise in this because you are able to find those those gems in places where other people would not even think to look. And so I think this is this alone is good enough reason for people to buy the book and reach out to you again. So again, before you go, let the listeners know about the book and how they can work with you.
1: I appreciate it. So the book is The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Nobles. They can find it online. If they just search the title or search my name, Michael Reddington, it'll come up at the major online retailers. My website is inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Michael Reddington, CFI, and certainly anybody that wants to reach out and connect and and ask questions, I'm happy to. And for those that do go out and purchase the book, I'm, I'm grateful for that and will be happy to hear either or both their most valuable takeaways and what questions does it create for them as they apply it to their life. Love it. Mike, money as
0: always. Really appreciate
1: it. I'm grateful for the opportunity, man. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure.